Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Hello. All right, I've been tasked to read the word. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 7. We're going to take a posture of prayer. So if able, if you would join me on your feet. Join me on your feet. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. You can say amen when you get it. Awesome. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent the rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. I thought Vanille was about to start preaching. (laughs) It was like that, like, mysterious pause of... I'm about to drop a bomb on all of you guys right here, right now. Good morning, friends and family. How about this weather? I've got my Clarks on today. Fall is here. Thank you, Jesus. I've been seeing a foretaste of it for a while, and now it's here. It's kind of like the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's a foretaste of things to come. Yes, be to God. Thank you. How about the chili cook-off last week? Did you guys enjoy? Wow. There's creativity in this room, in this community. It was fantastic. I, sh- I certainly enjoyed our chili cook-off last week. And uh, we were able to uh, raise over like $300 to go towards Afghan refugees that have arrived into the triad now, which is fantastic. And um, yeah, thank you for all of that you did last week to contribute. It was fantastic to see. Uh, tomorrow... Sayla J. Loman will be brought into this world. I cannot wait to meet my baby girl. And I know Jordan can't wait to get her out. <laughs> it's a miracle we're here today. So be praying for us for the rest of the day and into tomorrow as our firstborn comes into the world that we are living in. And we're very excited to have her. And we could use your prayers, that is for sure. Today we are wrapping up our five-week shallow dive, so to speak, or so to speak, into our communal rhythm of life. Months ago, as we prepared to regather and were casting vision together as a leadership team for the future of our community, 
we felt that the new phase we were stepping into as a church of the future was actually anchoring ourselves by way of ancient practices. I believe that the church of the future is going to become more and more ancient. And we felt that it was important for us to begin to make that turn as well. We said it before that abstract and theoretical values simply do not cut it in terms of practicing the way of Jesus and being and becoming disciples of Jesus. In the chaotic moment that we find ourselves in, which it is chaotic, it is turbulent, I realize that, we are in need of a practical structure to guide or index us toward Jesus and the life he offers. We need some sort of guide. We need some sort of direction that indexes us toward Jesus and the life that he offers. You know, if you want to lose weight, you don't just make that statement a value. I want to lose weight. That's, that's a value of mine. No, you do something about it, right? You go to the gym. You change the way you eat. You stop going to Cold Stone for a little while. You stop eating cookies for a little bit. You change your behavior. You don't just say, I want to lose weight as a value. You do something about it. Or if you want to learn the piano, you don't just listen to people talk about playing piano. Or just watch YouTube videos of people talking about the piano or playing piano. You don't just listen to piano music. You actually begin to practice piano. You begin to take steps towards becoming a piano player, a pianist. And so we feel like it's important for us to not just have theoretical values, but practical rhythms that anchor us in the way of Jesus. This rhythm of life concept was adopted from St. Benedict from the 6th century. And he popularized this idea as a monastic order, as this rhythm and rule of life 1,500 years ago. So what we're doing is ancient Adopting this monastic rhythm of life is an ancient practice that we see in the life of someone like St. Benedict. It had been around for a while, but he popularized the idea. We must continue to remember, as a family and as a community, that we can't curate outcomes. You cannot curate your own transformation. Okay? We cannot control our formation, but we can certainly create space and margin where transformation can occur. It is the Holy Spirit that changes and transforms us. These practices do not change or transform you. They create space for you to be changed and transformed by way of the Spirit, the advocate, the teacher, the guide, the helper, the comforter, the one that empowers us to live and to reflect Jesus into this world. I really love uh, Ken Shigematsu's definition of a rule or rhythm of life. I shared this with you all a couple of weeks ago, where he says in his book, God in My Everything, the purpose of the rule or the rhythm in this sense is not to be harsh or confining. It is to cultivate fruit. It serves as a pattern for life that enables us, love that word, enables us to experience the presence of Jesus in each moment of our lives. But that's not all. Also, empowering us to become people who embody or incarnate his love to others. 
The rule of life enables us to experience the presence and it empowers us to become people of love, to embody agape with our neighbors, our friends, our family, and those that we interact with on a daily basis. It must be said that these practices are meant to produce fruit. These rhythms and practices are meant to produce fruit. Our formation into Christ-likeness is for the sake of the world, not just for the sake of ourselves. It is for the sake of the world. Our character, your character, is measured by fruit. Did you know that? Your character is measured by the fruit that you produce. If these practices... Hear me out. If these practices and rhythms aren't producing fruit that others can see and experience, it just becomes project self and not practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. We are not after project self. (laughs) We are after practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Keep in mind, spiritual formation isn't just a Christian thing. It's not just a a Christian thing. It is a human thing. Spiritual formation is a human thing. We all, in this room, in this world, are being formed. The question we have to ask is who or what are we being formed into or formed by? We all are being shaped. We all are becoming something or someone. You ever been around like friends or other relatives and they're like you look just like your daddy or you look just like your mom or you act some of you spouses you act just like your mama right and counseling marriage counseling they're like never bring in bring the family dynamic into it like never bring extended family into the discussion okay because sometimes you're like hey girl you act just like your mama we're all being formed we all have someone or something that is pulling us sometimes subconsciously whether we know it or not. All of us are changing based on a mental map that has been handed to us. One small decision at a time. Every small decision that you make, neurologically, it is implanting itself into your brain, forming you into a certain type of person. The question we have to ask is, who am I becoming Who am I becoming? Spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing, it is a human thing. Robert Mulholland, who is a professor of spiritual formation at Asbury Seminary for a long time, and probably has the best book on spiritual formation called uh, Invitation to a Journey, he says, everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. We're all being formed, every last one of us. And what we are trying to do with these rhythms and practices is to be intentional about the spaces that we are creating in our lives so that we are formed by the Spirit in these spaces to look more like the Spirit, to look more like Jesus, and to reflect that character into the world. These practices just simply provide a map and foundation to orient us or move us toward intimacy with Christ and the countercultural ethic of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes, yes, to bring love, yes, to enter into intimacy with all of us, but he also provides for us a subversive countercultural ethic or way of life that is normative in the kingdom of heaven. 
That's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about, is the kingdom manifesto that is rooted in an ethic, a way of life. And if you notice, each of these practices speak to some sort of ache or some sort of longing within all humans. Each practice speaks to some sort of yearning within all of us, rooted in the fact that all of us long for Eden. We all long for paradise. We all long for wholeness. We all long for shalom. We all long for peace. We all long for happiness and for joy. The first four that we've looked at, the first being prayer. Prayer is a starting point for us. And that speaks to the ache within us for transcendence. I've seen the new Facebook groups commercial. Have you guys seen that by chance? And they're talking about like astrology and these Facebook groups that you can, you know, enter into the transcendent. And there's this unique, this unique imagery of like this new age idea with crystals and things like that. Like we crave transcendence. But I'm here to tell you that it's not just simply ethereal. It's not just the cosmos abstractly. It's a real being. God wants intimacy with us in a way that fits into this ache for transcendent intimacy. The second practice was rest. We live a hurried life. We're all busy. When someone says, how are you? The first thing we all say now is, I'm busy. That's what we do. It's what we say. Like, we are being formed by a hurried life. And so we all yearn and ache for peace. We all yearn and ache for peace and tranquility. The third is to learn. The rhythm and practice of learning. We all have some sort of ache and desire within us to have wisdom, to have a level of understanding, to have knowledge applied, not just information, but have knowledge by experience that's practical. How do we live in this world? And the fourth that we looked at last week was the rhythm and practice of gathering. All of us yearn to be known and to know, to be in community, to be a part of a family. We have a a deep ache within us for community. And so you can see how all of these rhythms and practices speak to an ache within all of us. And our final rhythm we are diving into today is the rhythm of contribution or contributing. That's what we're going to be speaking on today. And I have to say, this one is probably the one I'm the most intrigued by. Uh, Preparing for this talk was difficult because I'm like, I could spend a lot of time and research going into this idea of contributing. Because to be honest, I did not grow up in a church tradition that spoke a lot about contribution outside of being a greeter on Sunday morning. Or helping with coffee or helping with the worship team or maybe preaching. That was really about it. But there's so much more that speaks to our humanity's longing for contribution in the world. And it must be a part of our rhythm and practice. And there seems to be two primary existential questions that every human asks. All of you have asked these two questions at some point. No matter your age, your gender, your ethnic group, your locale, or your socioeconomic status. The first is the question, am I loved? Am I loved? Do I have a level of security in this world? Am I secure? Am I loved? The second is the question, do I have purpose? Do I have meaning? Do I have significance? These are two fundamental questions. doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, your story, your background, if you're following Jesus or not. You ask these two questions. Am I loved and do I have purpose? And contributing 
provides the anthropological answer and anecdote to that second question. But it flows out of the dramatic ontological, which is the study of being, and cosmological, yes, to that first question. So contribution flows out of that second question, but it really starts with the answer to that first question, am I loved? And it's a dramatic and cosmological, yes, you are loved. You are valued at a cosmological level. From the beginning of time, God loved you. So before we even begin to discuss the divine call of contributing, I must briefly share with all of you the basis by which we can answer the first question. First off, God does not need you or I. He does not need us. Instead, he wants you and I. Key distinction. God doesn't need you. He desires you. He wants you. He did not create humanity out of need. He didn't need subcontractors. He wanted them. But rather, he created us out of love. We were created by and for love. Not simply romantic love or even brotherly love, but a sacrificial love that gives itself away for the common good of humanity and for creation. We were created by love and for love. That is so important for all of us to understand the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We were created by and for love. Second off, the reason our heart and our emotions are pulled whenever we see human atrocities and injustice in our world certainly isn't because of social Darwinism where the strong eat the weak. It's survival of the fittest. And our modern secular notion is social Darwinism. Yuval Harari, who's probably the most well-known atheistic historian and scientist across the world right now, who wrote a, a very popular book um, not too long ago, speaks to the idea that human rights is a Christian myth. An atheistic scholar, Yuval Harari, wrote a book called Sapiens. Go look at it. Human rights is a Christian idea. It is part of who we are and our understanding of the world. And so to be honest, there are people out there who simply ascribe to this idea of social Darwinism. Good luck. It's all about survival of the fittest. But that's not why our heartstrings are pulled. It isn't because of constitutional policy. It's not government. Why? Because there are pre-political rights assumed when the Constitution was created. It's not constitutional policy. And it isn't simply our subjective intuition. That's not why our heartstrings are pulled. Why? We are all pulled by different things. Some of you have different pulls and bends towards different things. Some of you, it is the foster care system. Some of you, it is the perpetual racial injustice in our society that we live in. Some of you, it's, it's, the, it's the hunger that people across the world experience because of the lack of food security. Some of you, it's, it's the elderly. Some of you, it is the widows. Your hearts are pulled in different directions. So why then? 
If it isn't social Darwinism and it isn't constitutional policy and it isn't some subjective intuition, what is it? It is because in Genesis 1.27, God created all human beings in his image. His likeness. That is why. All humanity is created in the image of God and we have some innate understanding of that notion. That is why our heart is pulled. That we should treat one another with a level of dignity and respect. And we should receive dignity and respect. Because as I mentioned last week, in the animal kingdom, that doesn't exist. But humanity is unique. This implies every human being has inerrant value, dignity, and worth. And keep in mind, every creation narrative, that was not the case. Different creation narratives, you look back at Babylon, like in antiquity, the Babylonian mythology of how the world came to be. There was a caste system from the beginning of time. It's not what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We all have inherent dignity, value, and worth. Though we have been distorted by the disease that is sin, it has not and does not destroy that image. Distortion and destruction are two different things. You can have a child who scribbles marker on the Mona Lisa. It distorts it, but it doesn't destruct the beauty that it is. And the role of Jesus entering into the picture is to renew that image, to bring healing to that image. It does not destruct, it just simply distorts. We all bear the image of God as humanity. We were created by love and for love. I can't say that enough. You and I. Now, to be an image bearer does not make us God. Some of us have a distorted theology of the Imago Dei. To be made in the image of God does not make us God. In fact, it makes the subject of that statement God. The image of who? God. Not us. Okay? We are simply representatives of God in this world. That's what it means to be an icon or to be an image bearer. Just like an app icon on your phone. It's a representative of that app, is it not? That's the same way for us. Like a figurine that represents something bigger. Or idols. Did you know that you and I as humans are idols? We represent God. In this world, we are icons. We are to represent God's personality and attributes in this world. And again, it's distorted. But there is still beauty in it and there's still truth in it. And at times we do and at times we don't. We're a mixed bag. But the Lord is simply coming by way of his spirit, to renew this image. And because God worked, made and created the world that we live in, we also are to work, make, and create within this world. To be human means we have a significant purpose in society. Someone says, am I loved? Yes. Why? Genesis 1.27, from the beginning of time. You're made in the image of God. You have inherent dignity, value, and worth. Do I have purpose and significance? Yes, you do. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, rule, and subdue the earth. Genesis 2, which we're getting into today. You have inherent dignity, value, and worth, and significance. To be human means we have a significant purpose in society. Because God worked, we work. 
Daniela Augustine, a theologian at the University of Birmingham, says that because humans have a common image, it also means we have a common good we are after. Because there's common image, there's also common good. Because we share a common image, there's also some sort of common good that we seek and desire based on that image that's been given to us. And Genesis chapter 2, which Vania read earlier, lays out in more story form what is referred to as the cultural or dominion mandate. It's what theologians call the cultural mandate. It is the call of all humanity, all of us. When you leave here today, you're going to have a calling. Okay? Some of you are like, what's my calling? I'm going to let all of you know a generic calling you can start with today. All right? So buckle your seatbelt. All right? I'm going to answer some existential questions for all of you this morning. Free of charge. Totally free. All right? (laughs) Keep in mind that the blueprint for human flourishing and order should always start in Genesis 1 and 2. Biblical theology must start in Genesis 1 and 2. Our understanding of humanity and order should always start in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the blueprint that God has given us. We start before the fall, not after. The narrative starts in Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. All right? Yes, God. Come on. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) We start before the fall, not after. So, back to Genesis chapter 2. Here we go. Let's read it again. With this in mind, verse 5 through 7. Keep in mind, we're story-centered creatures, and this is a story. It shapes us way more than just giving us a list of to-dos or a list of facts. Facts don't change us. Stories do. Okay? So here we go. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. Hold up. God's got some serious care for shrubs and plants. I just want y'all to know. Okay? The dude's got a green thumb. All right? No shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. It's a key phrase and and few words there. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or the ruach, or the spirit of God. And the man became a living being. The Lord God, verse 15, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, which means delight, to work it and take care of it. A couple of things to note briefly about this passage. We already mentioned that God doesn't and didn't need humanity to create the cosmos. But the earth that had been created needed a God-like creature to create from it. So, God creates the cosmos and humans create within the cosmos. You track it with me? God creates the cosmos and humans create within the cosmos. You see the parallel there? It says there was no one to work the ground. Earth needed us. God created creators. The master worker created many workers. So we see that God created the cosmos and we are to create within the cosmos. God then forms a man 
The word is Adam in Hebrew, and we tend to make this a capital A, a, a personalized A for Adam, like a name, but it's not in the Hebrew, it's lowercase. He creates Adam in the Hebrew, out of the dust of the ground, which is Adama in Hebrew. So he creates Adam, which also means ground, and he creates him out of Adama, which also means ground in the Hebrew. So, God created Adam to work the Adama. You're learning Hebrew this morning. All right, God created human to work the ground. Do you see that? All right, you're becoming Hebraic scholars this morning. I love it. The word for work in the Hebrew is abad, A-B-A-D, not abad, like some of us would say in the South, abad. And it means to till, to serve, or to cultivate. So when it says there was no one to work the ground, it simply means there was no one to cultivate the ground. There was no one to till it, to serve it. And there is a twofold implication being presented here that speaks to our innate wiring and call as humans. When we see that God creates Adam, and he creates Adam to work the Adama, all right? The first thing is cultivating the earth. We as humans are called to cultivate the earth out of the raw materials of the earth. People who like to get dirty with your hands. This is like you. Cultivate with your hands. Do something. Create out of the raw materials and life that makes up the earth. The second, and this may be new for some of you, is cultivating humanity. Creating society. Creating communities. And creating culture. Why is that? Because Adam means ground and human. And if he is to work the Adama, he is to work the ground and to work in a society and to create a culture. Humans are gardeners in both the agricultural sense as well as the cultural sense. We are culture makers. We are workers with both our hands and our minds. To be human is to work. To work with materials and to work with other humans. To organize both the community garden and the community. To be human is to contribute. By our very innate nature, we contribute for good or for ill. It's who we are. I I think of it like this. uh, A parent inviting a child to help bake a cake. Right? Hey, Selah. <laughs> that sounds so cute, doesn't it? Can you help your daddy make a cake? Yeah, yeah, dad, I'd love to do that. Which y'all know I ain't making no cake, first of all. <laughs> okay, we go into the food line to get in the cake. Uh, she starts helping, she'll put in the sugar, she'll put in the flour, or whatever, you know, the eggs. And then Jordan comes home. Selah goes running up to Jordan. Mommy, I made a cake! I'm in the back like, honey, she ain't make no cake, okay? I made that cake. <laughs> but she's contributing to. The work hasn't just been given to us to do on our own. It's us helping our father. And it brings significance. It brings meaning. It brings purpose in the work. But he is with us. And ultimately, he's creating in this world. We're just helping him in this grand project. But to be human is to contribute. When you were a child and got excited about helping mom or dad bake a cake, it's that same idea of contributing in the world. You're working with your father to create something beautiful. We not only cultivate or work it in the language of Genesis 2, but we also steward or take care of it. 
To steward is to manage for the sake of further cultivation. To use well or to use purposefully. This is what economics is. Now, I will tell you, I was a business student in undergrad and macroeconomics was my demise. I took the class three times, failed it twice. Tough. Who just whistled? I mean, I mean, I'm already confessing my sin here. Jeez. You know, you're going to stay down, brother. Don't get up. Yeah. Took me three times to, to pass economics, but finally, after the third time, I've kind of gotten an understanding of economics, and it simply is to manage the materials and things that we've given by way of choice and trade-off. Right? You choose one thing, you're giving up another. That's what economics is. It's choice in a world of scarcity. How do we manage what we have? And so we are called to steward as well as to work. So then Eve is brought along to rescue Adam from the job. Keep in mind, Eve is not just some like side chick. Adam needs some help. He needs a rescuer. He needs somebody who can work with him. Okay? She is not in submission to Adam. She is in a commission with Adam to rescue him and to help, all right? She comes along to help him with the job because he shouldn't be alone, but also because he needs help in this work of cultivation. So here we see the birth of what I would refer to as the human job description. We have the human job description that's giving to us as a people, as humanity. Not only does the world need humanity, like we just read, but we, you and I, need the world to bring fulfillment to that ache within us for significance. We need the world to bring that sense of significance, meaning, purpose, and flourishing. We need a canvas. We are natural artists and creators, builders. We have to have a, a sandbox to play in. We've got to have a garden to cultivate. We've got to have a project. We have to have ideas that we can run with. We are wired in such a way. Vincent Baycote, who's a theologian at Wheaton College, which is like the Christian Harvard, in case you guys did not know. <laughs> the creation accounts reveal that humans are divine image bearers who are created to work as stewards in God's world. These forms of work are opportunities to contribute to human flourishing. Put another way, work that contributes to the good of God's world is one of the most primary expressions of being a divine image bearer. Do you see why it's so important we understand we are image bearers? It's part of who we are. And part of bearing that image is to work. The desire to contribute is at the core of our very existence. At the core of our very existence as humanity is the desire to work and to create and contribute. And don't you love that God gives humanity a blank canvas to work with? He's like, go for it. He doesn't give them a completed project. He gives them a sandbox to play in. Go for it. Have at it. Go build. Go create. Go develop. Go organize. Go engineer. Go make something beautiful. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Show Baraka, who's an artist, an activist, and a writer, says, The better we understand that we are creators and we are made to create, 
and how that was corrupted and how Jesus is redeeming all things, the more intimate we will become with our work. It won't just be something we do. It will be something that is part of our identity as worshipers. Your work is worship. I don't know if you've ever been told that before. Your work, wherever you work, whether you're a student, you're an engineer, you're an accountant, you're a teacher, you're a social worker, you're a designer, you're an artist, whatever it may be, your work is worship. So, what is the ultimate aim in terms of contribution and work? That's the question we have to ask. What are we actually after in terms of contributing? What is the result? The result of God-centered contribution is blessing. It's blessing. Genesis 1 verse 22 and verse 28 says God blessed them. Then in the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, he tells him that they will become a blessing to the nations. God blessed humanity and he blesses us to be a blessing in the world. We have been blessed to be a blessing and we do so by contributing. So what does it mean to bless? It's not just dropping off a meal at someone's house when they're sick. That's part of it, but it's much, much more. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, gives us a good definition of blessing, I think. Blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. It isn't just words. It's the actual putting forth of your will for the good of another person. It always involves God because when you will the good of another person, you realize only God is capable of bringing that. Blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. Blessing or good work, we could say, or beautiful work, then produces flourishing. Blessing produces beauty. It produces abundance. It produces shalom. And in a broken world, we need more blessing. Our work and contribution must be a blessing of goodness, beauty, and flourishing in society and in our city. So, we know what we're after. We're after blessing. That's kind of the next move after contribution. We know our work and creativity matters. What does contribution actually look like? What does contribution actually look like, practically speaking? So, here we go. Contributing is all about the service of one's time, talent, and resources toward the blessing of humanity and the renewal of all things. You're like, what does it mean to practice contributing? Are you using your time, talent, and resources toward the blessing of humanity and the renewal of all things? How are you blessing people with your time? How are you blessing people in communities with your talent? And how are you blessing them with your resources? For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. We are to take on the posture of a servant in this world. I'm not talking about a philanthropist, okay? Philanthropy is doing good without an eschatological vision in mind. We serve because we have hope and glory. We have a future new creation we're looking forward to. And consumption, by the way, friends, is the antithesis of contributing. Consuming is the antonym of contributing. And if your posture is naturally one of consumption, you're not contributing. And we're called to contribute. So keep that in mind. And we live in a consumer-based culture. 
a consumer-based society. To subvert that, we must be contributors to flourishing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Notice that Peter says, each of you. Not some. Some of you are like, I can't sing. Okay. Some of you are like, I can't preach. Okay. What can you do? What gifts do you have? Each of you have been given a gift. Each of you have a talent, an ability, a wiring that you should use, whatever it may be, to serve others as a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. And I'll be honest, some of us, some of you in the room are not good stewards of the gift that you've been given. And the call is to steward it, to use it well. This goes back to the parable of the talents. Are you faithful what God has given you? Are you faithful with it? You have a gift. Are you using it for the common good? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Are you using your gift? That's the question we have to ask this morning. Anne Bradley, who's an economist and economics professor at George Mason, says, When we serve other people with our God-given gifts, talents, time, and resources, we help them flourish. What does flourishing look like then? It is when the wilderness becomes fruitful. We are in a time of wilderness. And what seeds of fruit and life are you planting in the spaces of the wilderness that you find yourselves in? When we use our gifts and we serve others, we help them flourish. We contribute. The engine that brings forth new creation type flourishing in the world is the Holy Spirit. And the church is where the Spirit dwells. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We as the church are to be a divine movement and community of blessing. The rhythm of contributing is to give of your time, talent, and resources to both society and the local church. If you in fact believe that the church is God's plan A to bring redemption and renewal to the world, and it is based on the narrative of the scriptures. So you and I, we should use our gifts in society and in the local church if the church is the primary engine of manifestation of the spirit in the world that brings forth renewal. Does that make sense? It's not just contributing in society. It's also contributing in the local church as well. We are members of one body. We have a gift we have to offer to perpetuate renewal and to perpetuate the divine community that we are. So, to close, here's a few questions that I want us to sit with this morning that I want us to ask ourselves. The first question is this. What needs do I see? In the world and the church. What needs do I see? When you look around the world, where do you see brokenness? Whether they are systems of brokenness, and there are. Whether there are communities of brokenness, and there are. Or whether there are individuals with brokenness, and there are. Where do you see needs, both in the world and in our community? Where in the United City do you see a need? You're like, I have a gift that can fulfill it. What do you see? Open your eyes to the needs of the world around us. John Tyson 
says the only way to not be overwhelmed by the need of the world is to find what God is asking you to do in the world. Some of you are so overwhelmed with the needs of the world. To subvert that, you have to begin to ask, well, what am I to do in the world? What am I to do in the world? The second question we have to ask is, what gifts or talents do I have? You need to do an assessment. Look at your life. And there's wonderful gifts, assessments we can provide for you that we think are fantastic. What gifts or talents do I have that I can contribute and bring to the table? The third question is, what ways am I currently contributing? Look at your life and say, this, I'm contributing this way. I'm using my time this way. I'm using my resources this way. I'm using my abilities and talent this way. And then the last question is, what ways am I not contributing? Because the hope is that all of us are using our time and our talent and our resources. We are not hoarders, we are stewards to use and to manage well. Some of us use our time, but we don't use our talent or our resources. Some of us use our resources, but not our talent or our time. The hope for holistic formation into Christ's likeness is to use all three for contributing time, talent, and resources. So we have to ask, what ways am I not contributing? And this is different from volunteering. The posture of contributing is a lifestyle posture. To be a servant moves into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and so on. Not just on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. I'm not calling you to just volunteer, but to contribute towards the common good, towards renewal. And we must realize that the goal of God's redemptive story isn't simply to evacuate all of us from earth. And some of us grew up in churches that that was the theology. That the goal of salvation is to get to heaven when you die. And that is not the grand scope or theological picture painted from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, if you go read Revelation 21 and 22, it is a picture of a city coming where? Down. Of a renewed earth. It is actually to bring restoration to all things. I'm going to get the band to come up and we're going to sing together um, what a beautiful name it is. Because the role of contributing in society is to image the beauty of God into the brokenness of society. Love has a regenerative element about it. It regenerates itself. Beauty regenerates itself. And we are to participate in the renewal of all things, to contribute towards restoration. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, your kingdom, what? Come. Come down. Come here. Come now. Manifest yourself. Give us a foretaste of what is to come. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Your desires, your purpose be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to bring heaven down. And as people of God, heaven dwells within us. We are the overlapping of heaven and earth because the Spirit of God dwells within us. So wherever we go, if we have a faithful presence, my hope is that people experience a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of the kingdom of God. We, friends, all of us in this room, are image-bearing culture makers of love and blessing. Blessing is love with words and works. Whatever you and I do, may we all do it for the glory of God. May we manifest beauty and may we realize our work matters. Your work 
is adding to the renewal and the restoration of all things. 